This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest today is Bita Bagulizadeh from the University of Pennsylvania Department of History, where she is working on her doctorate on the subject of slavery and abolition in Iran. Bita, welcome to the studio. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start out by talking about the institution of slavery in Iran, which I think anybody who's seen the relics from Persepolis and the ancient Persian monuments knows goes back into antiquity. So what period are you looking at when you're looking at the institution of slavery? I'm looking at the late 19th and early 20th century. The abolition of the slave trade really started in 1848, and the abolition of the institution as a whole took place in 1928. You said the slave trade was abolished in 1848. Was that an internal decision, or did it have to do with, for example, the increase of British patrols in the Indian Ocean? Well, that's a bit of a complicated question. If we back up a little bit, In the early 19th century, Iran was located at the crossroads of three major slave trades, the Caucasian slave trade in the north, the Central Asian slave trade also in the north, and the East African slave trade, which was brought up through the South Persian Gulf or land routes over from Arabia. There's this sense within the scholarship that the northern slave trades petered out with the strengthening of Russia with the Treaty of Turkmenchai in the 1830s and with a stronger Russian presence in the Caucasus. Once that happened, there's a sort of sense that the number of quote-unquote, you know, white slaves really decreased in Iran. So you have this increased demand for East African slaves. And when I say East African, I'm really talking about, you know, Ethiopian or Eritrean slaves, but those sorts of labels aren't really temporally adequate. So Abyssinian, I guess, is one term we can use. By the 1840s, there's this increased pressure from the British on the Iranian government to abolish the slave trade. And what they're talking about is really the slave trade of the South. Um, In 1848, the Shah of Iran signs a decree abolishing the slave trade. And then he dies three days later. Oh, wow. So, (laughs) so, um... I mean, it may not have been three days later, but he dies pretty shortly thereafter. And no one really cares because, like, these British guys wanted us to abolish slavery, but the guy who abolished it is dead. So who cares? The British came back in 1852 and reminded the Iranians that they had pledged to abolish the slave trade. And so then you see some more government efforts towards abolishing the slave trade. So you have letters from the prime minister of the time, Amir Kabir, writing to sheikhs in the south saying, please stop bringing, quote, those blacks onto our coast. There's a sense that there is a racialized system of slavery in place in Iran and that there are some actors trying to dismantle it. What they're talking about, though, is just the slave trade. Nobility, the royal family themselves, merchants who are well-to-do, all tried to have or had slaves in their household. And so at this point, it's important to sort of talk about what this meant. What did slavery look like in Iran? In the past, when people have tried to describe slavery in Iran, they'll say things like, oh, look at how Iran had domestic slavery. 
they weren't really doing that many things. It was a more benevolent institution. It's not like they were being whipped. And there's a sort of sense that they're talking against American plantation slavery. The sense that you don't want to associate Iranian slavery with American plantation slavery, which for my purposes tends to be really unhelpful. Slavery is at its core a violent institution. It's a traumatizing institution. I think when people describe it, they fall into this trap of saying, well, see, it's so much better. And that's definitely something I want to stay away from. But just to give a sense of what it is, you didn't have too many plantations in Iran. The people that were brought over as slaves in Iran were a lot of women. You had eunuchs. And you also had some men. And the, the duties that you had to perform, some people would describe them as domestic. Some people would... Um, you know, highlight that it's a gendered thing, that the women were sexually vulnerable, all sorts of things that you think about when you think about slavery. So you don't need to have a cotton plantation to know that you are at your master's disposal. Plantation slavery doesn't need to be the definition that determines whether or not something is slavery. By the late 19th century, you had mentioned that the Caucasian and the Central Asian slave trades sort of petered out and the East African trade was officially discouraged, if not necessarily banned or prohibited. Who, demographically speaking, were the slaves at that point? Were they mostly the Abyssinians, or did we still see some of these Caucasian and Central Asian slaves coming in at that point? You still see some of the, quote, white slaves coming in. You have some Circassian slaves. You have, you know, they're Caucasian. The Central Asian slavery was uh, sustained through smuggling. There is that presence there. It doesn't, it doesn't totally disappear. What happens, though, is that the presence of blacks and, you know, the Abyssinians as slaves became the overwhelming symbol of slavery within Iran. What you do see is that by the end of the 19th century, there is this racialized sense of what slavery is and that black people are slaves. And so I said earlier that there were letters sent to the port cities saying, don't bring those blacks over. Even though the presence of African traders in Iran as free traders, as free men existed, there was a lot of sort of exchanges with the Swahili coast historically going back centuries. But by the late 19th century, there is the sense that if you see someone with darker skin in Iran, that person's probably a slave. And so you have a language to describe that. You mentioned the sort of connection between slavery and the East African trade, which would have come in on the Persian Gulf ports. Is that where you tended to find slaves, or were they scattered throughout the country? They were scattered across the country in urban centers. So you had them in Tehran, you had them in Esfahan, and you had them in the southern coast. You probably had them in Mashhad, because that's where the larger merchant families were. And it's not only that they were coming in from the port cities, but it was also in the 1870s when the British started patrolling the ports. The trade of slavery really switched to overland routes. And so a wealthy merchant would get up, decide he was going to perform his obligatory pilgrimage to Mecca, go on Hajj, go to the slave bazaars in Mecca, pick up a slave and come back. And that was a sign of his prestige. And so the trade of slaves becomes something that's maybe not done 
in Iran so much anymore because you can't have ships coming in, DAVs coming in, and unloading slaves the way they would have been able to before. Or you'd have underground slave trade happening in Iran. There's no sort of, at least I haven't been able to find a record of where um, slaves were being sold, for example. And I get the sense that they were being sold privately in homes. But it's definitely not limited to the port cities. It's something that was practiced all over the country. And of course, the further north you go, the easier it was to smuggle in, you know, Central Asian women or Circassian women. You mentioned that slavery was abolished in 1928. Mm -hmm. Was there a popular movement leading to that or was it done by royal decree? What was the motivation for, at this point, we're in the reign of Reza Shah, for the abolition at that point? That's such an interesting question, and it's one I've really been grappling with. As far as the actual abolition goes, it was a royally introduced piece of legislation into parliament. And because it came from, you know, Reza Shah or one of his, um, one of his close deputies, there was a sense that it had to be fast-forwarded through parliament. And the discussion in parliament is... Do we want to abolish slavery? Do we not want to abolish slavery? What is the role of Islam in slavery? Why are they even slaves? There's a statement that's being made multiple times throughout saying, you know, we don't really have slaves. It's really the Arabs who bring in slaves to our country. And this piece of legislation would prevent those random merchants on the borderlands from bringing in slaves. So already they're excusing any Iranians of having anything to do with slavery within parliament. And there are two sort of arguments. One side says we don't need to abolish slavery right now because that doesn't really exist in our country. And when it does exist, it's done by foreigners. And even when it's done by foreigners, it's a positive institution. And that's because you're taking people who are savages, they're vashi, you're taking people who are of the jungle, Jangali, and you're civilizing them. So you have the same sort of civilizing language of slavery that we've heard, we're likely familiar with from the American example. The other side doesn't even make that great of an argument. They just say, you know, we have to do this because we're a modern country and we want to be more modern. And they vote and they pass it, which is, you know, to be expected. The king was the one who wanted it to happen. It's interesting because it overlaps with this period of wanting to seem modern. And from the sources that I've looked at, it seems like what's happening is that people are aware that most progressive, modern countries in the world have abolished slavery. And there's a sense that it's embarrassing that, you know, what are other countries going to think of? And at this time, Iran's, you know, joining the League of Nations, the Geneva Convention, you can't have slavery. And so there's a sort of interest in wanting to fast forward and meet everyone else where they're at, or not everyone else, but the choice European countries and the US where they're at, where they've all abolished slavery for, you know, decades now. There is a sense that's embarrassing. And there's a there's an interest in wanting to control that. And what I've seen is that the abolition of slavery in Iran really takes on an element of erasure and an element of willful forgetting where it's not taught, it's not really spoken about, 
and the sort of remnants of it are sanitized. So you have abolition in 1928. Major government building where you would have seen slavery is the harem, right? Like, that's where the Shah would have kept his wives. Right. And that's where the Shah would have had, you know, because the Qajar Shahs, they had, they had their choice of women and they had quite a few of them. And that's where their wives would have had servants and slaves and eunuchs would have been guarding it. You know, right before abolition, Reza Shah had that torn down. You can't go and see where where the slaves slept or what was going on. Some people have pointed out that this is about, you know, the modernization of women. You don't want polygamy to be, like, so central to the world's image of the government. But you also don't want slavery to be so central to the image of the government. And this, you know, continues on and continues to this day. You've mentioned in our discussions outside of the studio that a lot of people in Iran either don't acknowledge or don't even know that the country had a history of slaveholding. Is that sort of a legacy of this erasure of the physical remnants of the institution? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I would say that it wasn't just a physical erasure, but that there was a sort of intellectual erasure of the slavery as well. You know, one really interesting example is Haji Firuz. And for anyone who's familiar with any sort of Iranian New Year's tradition, you know two things. You know that, or maybe you know three. One, that the Iranian New Year, or the Persian New Year, because it's not only celebrated in Iran, but, you know, across Asia, is that it takes place on the first day of spring. It's the spring equinox. The second thing is that a lot of Iranians will jump over fire the last Tuesday of the year. And the third thing is that you have a blackface character that shows up. And he's not quite the Santa Claus. The Santa Claus is this other guy. But he comes and he's he's dressed in red. He has his tambourine. And he's his face is black. And he has this rhyme that goes, Oh, my master, hold your head up high. Oh, master, cheer up. It's Noru's, like, be happy. And he's really there to you know, make his master smile. So if you look at this, immediately you would think, oh, this is someone acting as a minstrel, right? You're taking on the role of being a black minstrel in blackface. Whereas, you know, sometime after abolition happened, there have been all these theories about how Haji Firuz is really just this um, Zoroastrian character, and they draw upon this idea that Zoroastrians hold fire sacred. They use it in a lot of their ritual practices. So Haji Firuz was just hanging out around the fire or he was tending to the fire. And because of that, the smoke blackened his face. And that's why his face is so black. This is sort of ridiculous, right? Like, let's be honest, it's a very far-fetched, fantastical stream of logic. The more logical thing would be, oh, Iran had a history of slavery. Iran had black minstrels. Some of them were called Haji Firuz. Nasruddin Shah, the king who ruled Iran from 1848 to 1896, had a black eunuch in his court named Haji Firuz. It's not that strange to think, oh, this character is somehow related to the history of slavery. And in 1951, this poet, Mehdi Akhavan he he wrote a poem about Nowruz, in his poem, he's talking about Noruz and he's talking about a heralder, and then he annotates it. And he says, some people might say that this heralder is Haji Firuz. And this is in 1951. 
He's most familiar with southern Iran and northeastern Iran. And he says the the practice of Haji Firuz is a dehumanizing practice. It harkens back to this history of slavery. It's about, you know, one man entertaining another man in the lowest of ways. And he acknowledges that, right? That's in 1951. But as you go further away from um, abolition, there are all these theories about how this is actually a Zoroastrian practice. There's this interest in tying present-day cultural traditions to ancient Iran, to pre-Islamic Iran, to some sort of Zoroastrian practice to legitimize them. And of course, this is, you know, the product of nationalism. It's the product of Reza Shah emphasizing a sort of Aryan past. It's the product of Muhammad Reza Shah emphasizing Cyrus the Great. I cannot I cannot enumerate how many people have come up to me and said, well, we never had slaves, you know, because Cyrus the Great freed them all. There's a sense that ancient Iran becomes really, like, it becomes the marker for what true Iran is. That erases their understanding of the recent history. But yeah, there is an erasure. And it's something I struggle with a lot. This is in such strong contrast to the way that we in the United States have dealt with the legacy of slavery. But at the same time, it's important to remember that slavery was not just an American phenomenon. Yeah, no, it, and sorry, let me stop you right there. It wasn't just an American phenomenon. What happens is the civil rights movement really captures everyone's attention. And this was something that was reported heavily in Iranian newspapers. They followed it with um, with great interest. And so from there, they learned about the legacy of slavery and the sort of racial strife that emerged out of that uh, as a social reality in the U.S. That didn't exist so much in Iran because the number of black slaves who were brought into Iran were far fewer than the number of black slaves that were brought into the U.S. And so already you have a different sort of population dynamic going on. What happens during the civil rights movement, though, is that because it's so heavily publicized that people say, oh, look, that's what slavery and its aftermath looks like, to the point that it even affects how people think of the word slavery. So, for example, in the 1928 law that abolishes the institution of slavery, it uses a word, and it's a a blanket word, that has historically applied to all forms of slavery, and they use pardadari which literally means having a slave. I mean, today, if you talk to, you know, an Iranian, they'll tell you, oh, we didn't have Baghdadari. That was an American thing. And it's because Baghdadari has be- has taken on this connotation of plantation slavery, of, um, of extreme economic slavery. The American example hijacked the story of slavery really globally. Right now, if you say slavery, if you say slaves... Someone's going to think, oh, you know, Georgia or... Gone with the wind. Gone with the wind. What a great example. Gone with the wind was such a big deal in Iran. Um, The film was dubbed. It's won awards for being the best dubbed movie. Uh, It was a novel that a lot of people read. People in, you know, I'm an Iranian-American. People in my parents' generation uh, love that book. In Persian. In Persian. They read that book in Persian. And there were other books that were translated, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, Alex Haley's Roots, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Actually, the autobiography of Malcolm X, the translated version was 
was publicized in the newspapers shortly after Malcolm X's assassination. So that just tells you how quickly it was translated because the audience was there. And it's interesting that they had such a strong global outlook, but then it also calls into question, like, why why was their attention so much on the American example to the point that they've forgotten their own history of slavery? Oh, that's an interesting question to ponder. And um, I wish you luck as you continue to ponder it as you develop your dissertation. I'd like to thank you for being with us in the studio today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been another episode of 15-Minute History. We'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15minutehistory. That's the numerals 15minutehistory. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.